Again, it's Genesis 3, 1 through 10. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we want to come right now to thank you for the cross. We thank you uh, for the good news that we celebrate this morning. And that the cross is not the end of the story. It's really the beginning. And so we thank you for the resurrection. Uh, We thank you for forgiveness, for grace, and for the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, could you imagine if someone came up to you and how unfair it might be if they said, look, uh... I've heard of this thing called Star Wars. I would like to just have an explanation of what's the big reveal? What's the big thing, uh, the key moment in in the movie series? And it would be kind of unfair because I think many of us would recognize there is this key moment that you would have to jump to. You would have to say, well, I think the key moment you need to know about is out on this catwalk where there's this evil man, Darth Vader, who's with this other guy, Luke Skywalker. And there's a debate about what has happened to Luke Skywalker's father. And, and at that moment, we know the line where Darth Vader pipes up and says, no, I am your father. Do you think how unfair it might be? Because if you just cut to that moment, I mean, there's no understanding of what's come before, what will happen after and how this all ties together. You wouldn't be able to get into the the details about the empire. You wouldn't be able to talk about the rebel force. You wouldn't be able to explain this thing called a Death Star, let alone the Jedis or Yoda or anything else. It would be a bit unfair if you had to cut right to it. Likewise, for Christians, if someone said, what's the big reveal? What's the big thing? Cut right to it. Well, for us, wouldn't, wouldn't we have to jump to the cross and to to today, to Resurrection Sunday, to the fact that Jesus rose. And in some ways, that, that's it. That's the very crux of the whole matter. But then at the same time, you would say, well, yes, but this only makes sense if you understand everything else that's come before or will come after. We wouldn't be able to talk about the biggest reveal in many ways about Jesus, where 
his father is calling out of heaven and saying, it's not Joseph. Jesus' father is not Joseph. God, the heavenly father, says, no, I am your father. We wouldn't be able to talk about where the Lord says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Wouldn't be able to get into the, the, the rebels who left all of heaven and and are at work right now even to bring chaos and destruction into the, into the world. We wouldn't be able to talk about that rebel force. Wouldn't be able to talk about the fact that our God is the creator who created the planets and the stars. No, it, it wouldn't be fair. But see, friends, what we believe is that Christianity didn't just begin at the cross. It's the key moment. But it didn't begin there. It didn't begin on Skull Hill. It didn't begin... At the cross, Christianity really didn't even quite begin at the cradle with Jesus being born. It began with creation. It it began where God, as this amazing artist, puts into motion everything that we experience as he creates. So he creates the world as we understand it with the with the heavens and the seas and the mountains and and the plants and the animals and man and woman. Joined together. And they're dwelling at the very beginning in Genesis, at the very first book of the Bible. They're there dwelling in this most beautiful garden called the Garden of Eden. Eden, that name means bliss, it means paradise. And they are dwelling there. And it's really important for us to catch that prior to, to sin entering the world, there was this joy that was had between, between all of creation. And the Lord himself. It's a very wonderful scene. And as you're finishing chapter 2 of Genesis, you almost could imagine the, the narrator saying, and they lived happily ever after. In fact, the, the line that we read at the end of Genesis 2, at cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 25, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not, listen to this word, ashamed. They were both naked but not ashamed. It's a beautiful line saying that there's this openness between them. Friends, at this moment, they're given the shortest Bible ever. The, their Bible at this, this moment, it's simply this. You can uh, eat whatever tree of whatever fruit you want of whatever tree. And you're to expand the, the, the boundaries of this garden. You're to make this garden thrive. You are to name the animals. But there's just one thing. Just don't eat of this one tree. There's the one. We must obey him regarding this one tree. And as we open up our kids' illustrated Bibles and you go to this scene, the, the two-dimensional picture that we get, it doesn't, it's not, help, you know, they're, they're trying to help us out and they're trying to keep it, you know, PG for the kids. So here we have Adam and Eve, they're naked in this garden. And the, the, the way the, in the Bibles this is illustrated, there's always like a bush kind of covering them up, you know, or a, or a tree branch that just happens to go right across the right parts to cover up, which is great, um, you know, because we don't want to see that in the kids' Bibles now. But you have to understand the fact that they were naked and unashamed reveals something to us. Before sin entered into the world, their hearts did not have any corruption. There was no evil at the, in, in their hearts at this moment, in their very souls and spirits. And this means they had nothing on the inside, the core of who they are. They had nothing to hide from one another. They were able to be open person to person. And the way that that actually gets expressed 
is the fact that they could be open outwardly physically too. So that the physical outward mirrors what's going on at the heart level. And everything then begins to change here because at the moment they're outward, they have no shame, but something changes through the lie of the serpent. Through the lie of the serpent, they begin to trust rather than the creator. They trust a different voice. They hear a different voice and they say, we will trust this voice. It's the voice of the serpent, this Satan who comes in to bring sin into the world. And the fall of man brings upon them this terrible shame. So that Adam and Eve, they die not just physically, but they actually, more importantly, they die spiritually. Um, and, and it's not instantaneously, but they, yes, they do die a physical death. Now, in chapter 3 of Genesis, at verse 7, it sits in opposition to chapter 2, verse 25. So, listen again to 2.25, and then we'll hear 3.7. 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then after the fall, listen how this changes. Verse 7 of chapter 3, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they're exposed in this moment. They're exposed and they have shame. The shame that they didn't have in chapter 2, they now have. And now because of sin, they have things to hide from each other. See, sin makes it so we don't want to expose the real us to other people. And so there's something to hide in this moment. Um, So they have guilt. They have embarrassment. They have shame. Well, what's the solution? If you have shame... What's the solution? Well, one thing that is true for Adam and Eve, that's true for you and I, is that we can't bear shame. We don't want anything to do with shame. In fact, if you do a survey, you will definitely find that most folks would actually prefer some form of physical pain to shame because we don't want shame at all. And so we, we, we must cover it up. We must cover up our shame. So this morning, we're looking at two cover-ups. First, the world's worst cover-up, and then we'll see the world's greatest and best cover-up. The world's worst cover-up. Much of what Scripture shows us is that we follow a suit along with Adam and Eve, and we inherit the results, a, a spiritual and physical death, which sets into motion humanity's need for a Savior. And to save us from this death brought on by our rebellion. And so, most often, we settle to provide for our own covering, our own salvation. And so we gather fig leaves to cover our shame and think somehow it's going to accomplish the task. We don't really want to let our guard down with those around us. We don't really want folks to know at times the real us. Um, and we don't want them to see all of our weaknesses so we can find ways of covering this up. And it's, it's basically fig leaves. What happens when we are trying to cover our inadequacies when we're trying to cover up our weaknesses and our sin and our shame is we come up with fig leaves. Uh, I'll illustrate this. This, this came about for myself in one particular way. I realized just how true it was. I can try and cover up for my inadequacies. I was going out in the gorge. It was like February or March. So, you know, it was still cold and I was going to go on an overnight backpack trip by myself. And so I'm thinking, well, it's cold. I better load up. And so I I put everything in the backpack. I want my warmest clothes. I want extra clothes in case my nice clothes get wet. I'll have backups. And so I'm loading in in my heavy sleeping bag. And 
I'm going to be out there. I'll be cold, so I'll be very hungry. So I'm not just bringing, you know, a night or, or so's worth of food. I'm bringing several days worth of food and extra fuel and, and all the supplies. And because it's cold, I'm going to bring my new heavy boots. And so you can see this picture. I'm way overloaded with weight and I'm going up the gorge on these switchbacks and it's winter-ish time, and so, you know, the sun is starting to go down on me sooner than I was anticipating, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make it. I realize I'm in the middle of these switchbacks, and I've been at this for hours now, and I was starting to slow down because of all the weight on my back. All of a sudden, I had blisters now forming on my heels, and as I'm going up these switchbacks, it became clear I'm not going to make it by nightfall back down to the car, nor, nor will I make it up high enough onto the top. So I come to a crisis moment. Uh, if you've seen the movie, What About Bob? Where he is going like this and saying, baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. That's where I'm at in that moment. And I realized, um, by the way, I don't do this anymore. So I've learned. But I realized in the moment, I am out in a bad spot. And I have to pitch my tent in the middle of a switchback. With part of my tent hanging on where the hillside goes down. And part of the tent kind of angled up. And I'm literally just laying in the trail waiting for the morning to come for me to huddle back to my car. What was I doing? In my inadequacies. And I was trying to cover up for it. I was trying to make up for the stuff that I don't know and make up for, you know, my lack of abilities and being able to figure out how to do well out there in those conditions. It, I was trying to find an ingenious way of covering up the fact that I don't know what I'm doing out here in the middle of winter. Some of us, we cover up our shame and our inadequacies by myriads of ways. Some of us, we choose things like overachieving. We say, well, perhaps if I'm the very best at everything I do, I will feel proud and I won't have to feel like I have anything to hide. Others of us, we can cover it up. We can paint on a mask so that when we come to church or we're hanging out somewhere, we, we want others around us to think that we have it together. But the moment that we're back alone, we kind of shrink back into our sense of shame. Others can get themselves very busy with projects and tasks and even, even good things like helping others. Some of us will go the route of, of trying to be fault finders. Because if we can find other people who don't have it together... We can say, well, at least, at least I have it better than this per person has it. So we can try and cover up our shame that way. Um, and we see a growing number of folks who just want to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to embrace my sin and shame uh, by saying, you know, my life of sin, maybe I don't think it's sin at all. Or we can fall into various addictions to try and mask our shame. But if we could just be honest as a people in this moment, I think we all have something to be ashamed of. We can say, I think if everybody in this room knew my past, knew what I've been through, or even my present, you know, I would feel deep down inside, I would feel shame. Can anyone honestly say here that you have nothing to be ashamed of? I mean, if we could just put up on the screens here this morning, everything that you have thought for the last week, if we could just read a ticker list of every little thought that you've ever had over the last week, would there be anyone here who's not like, I'm running out the doors? Because I wouldn't, you know, we've all got something. Of course, we're not fooling anyone. We all have shame. But friends, I'm here this morning to tell you good news. That Jesus has come for those with sin and with shame. Um, like Adam and Eve who have something to hide. And, and this means if you have any sense of shame, you're his mission. Jesus came for you.
Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 reminds us because of sin and shame, we all have something to hide. And Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? This is God's way of saying we are all in this together. We all have a shameful past and many of us a shameful present. But friends, we are all in on this issue together. Nobody escapes. Uh, And so we get to work trying to cover it up. But it's just fig leaves. And thankfully, we're not left with fig leaves. Genesis hints at and shows us there is another way to have your shame covered. And it won't leave us feeling like a sham It will free our guilt-ridden hearts and so that we turn not to the worst at this moment, but we're turning to the world's greatest cover-up, the world's greatest and best cover-up. So I want to begin here with a little pop quiz in your mind, just thinking through. What is the first physical death in the Bible? What's the first place where we see death in the Bible? Well, some of us will go, oh yeah, that's with Cain and Abel, isn't it? Where, uh, Where Cain killed his brother Abel. No. Actually not. I think there's a death that's more important for us to catch this prior, and it's found in our chapter here this morning in Genesis 3. God does not want us to remain in our shame, and so he provides a covering for us. Look at chapter 3, verse 21, where we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God made for Adam and Eve and for, for his Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Why? I think what God wants to do is show us when you try to provide the covering, when you try to use fig leaves, it's not going to work. They won't last. It won't be the real covering you need. Only God can provide the type of covering to cover your shame that you really truly need. I think what Genesis Chapter 3 is setting into motion is what's worked out in the rest of the sacrificial system of the temple and the tabernacle. And the very first sacrifice in a very loose sense we might say is here in Genesis 3. For some of you here who would say, I'd like to become a Christian or I'd like to be a Christian, but you know, I, I read this in the Bible, I read that in the Bible, and I'm just, some of this stuff makes me scratch my head and thinking, do these people really believe this? What's going on here? And I just want to tell you this morning, you need to understand that there is more going on in the scripture than you are aware of. There's a reason nothing that we find in the scripture is arbitrary. It's not randomly placed there. It's placed there with a purpose for you to see, and we have to slow down to catch it. So here with this very first animal sacrifice, to provide the clothing, we have set a precedent for why Job and Abraham and Moses and everybody else, why this, why this sacrificial system comes into place. It's to provide, originally, the very first one was to provide covering, to provide clothes, to provide the covering. And, and this is where we go from skins in Genesis 3 to sacrifices to the Savior. The author of Hebrews He looks back on these sacrifices and he recognizes that they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, he says. Um, They may have held back for a while these sacrifices. They may have held back the wrath from God. Um, They may have held back punishment, but they're just a pattern. Uh, The Holy Spirit, the, the author of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit was intending these sacrifices to be something that was pointing us all along for to a final sacrifice that is needed. A final sacrifice to come. And so in Romans chapter 4, verse 7, I want you to listen for the key word in this. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You hear that word? It's important because God understands this idea of covering. We need to be covered. But how? How are we fully covered? Well, if you go from Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 3, you come to this city, Laodicea, where Jesus speaks to Laodicea, this, this church in this city, and he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire that you may be rich with white garments. Hear that? So that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those of you who were with us when we went through the, the, the letters to the seven churches will remember that Laodicea was a well-to-do church and they spent their money on lavish and beautiful garments and clothes. And Jesus is saying to them, look, if you want to spend a bunch of money, that's great. But why don't you go all in on something, not on your clothes, go all in on the clothing, the spiritual clothing that I provide, because that's where real value will be found. So if you want to go in and spend it all, then spend it on my sacrificial covering. For when we go all in on Jesus, we find that the hymn is true. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Paul states very plainly and clearly that this covering, this sacrificial covering is in connection with, the, with Christ rising. That Christ died for our sins, he says, in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. You see, the the scripture recognizes and wants us to see that we, we, we all in many ways were living for something. And Jesus says, would you live for me because I've died for you? Jesus Christ nullifies our shame. He nullifies our shame by becoming ashamed for us. He clothes us in his righteousness by being stripped bare on the very cross. Friends, Cicero, when he writes in history, he writes and he pens and he's talking about the crucifixion. He says, the crucifixion was so grotesque. It was so disgusting that you didn't talk about it. You wouldn't talk about it in public. No. And our father knew That the only way to fully cover your sin, the only way that he could possibly remove all your sin and shame so that this morning you would stand free would be if he went to the cross ashamed, stripped naked on the cross, bearing the weight of our guilt and our sin. So that with pierced hands and feet in full humiliation, Jesus replaces our bodies and our souls on the cross. Romans 5 makes it clear that while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. And praise God, it doesn't end there. Christ Jesus died for sinners who repent and turn from their sin and trust and believe in him. And the reason that we're celebrating this morning, that this is not a somber, this is not a, a somber moment. This is a joyful moment. And the reason we celebrate is because Jesus didn't remain in that graveyard. Jesus' funeral was cut short. I've been to a lot of funerals, many funerals. And when the funeral's over, it's sad because uh, we're still separated from that person. They're they're still dead. But in Jesus' case, the reason Christianity spread so quickly, 500 people 
saw the risen, resurrected Lord. His funeral was cut short. They began to mourn that very day. They began to be in heavy anguish, confused, confounded, in sorrow. And that very, that very Sunday, when they saw the resurrected Lord, the funeral was cut short completely. Imagine if you're at a funeral and somebody runs in and says, Stop! He's alive! She's alive! And the joy of that, the reality that it wasn't just a, a lie, it became true. Yes, because Good Friday, Jesus kills death through his death. And several thousand years before Christ, all we knew that was that death was final. It's where your story ended. But Jesus' resurrection Sunday is the fulfillment of him uttering, Behold, I'm making all things new. What do we lose if we lose the resurrection? If we lose the resurrection, we lose a whole lot more than than hard-boiled eggs and crummy milk chocolate. Friends, we do. We lose all hope for tomorrow. If this is not true, we've lost everything. And so, I'm praying and hoping that these words will settle on your hearts this morning. I'm going to read from Luke 22 about the resurrection, or sorry, Luke 24 about the resurrection here. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, when they went to the tomb... They're taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale and they did not believe him. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at all that had happened friends jesus christ's resurrection is telling us that our earthly death is just a bridge it's not a barricade it's to carry us from this world of sin and shame to a world of paradise And in some sense, it's to bring us back to the garden prior to the fall where there was no sin nor shame. But it will be a greater for all of God's redemptive purposes will be exposed to show that he has been victorious and no more sin or sorrow will be. And by the reality of the resurrection, he can tell the thief on the cross as he's there on the cross that very day. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, don't forget, what is the word for Eden what is the, the, the meaning of that word is, is bliss. It's paradise. And so in some sense, literally, he's saying today, you're going back with me to the garden before where you'll be unashamed, where sin is covered, where there's joy eternal, where you're, you have nothing to be afraid of. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if you have this morning, this, this resurrection. I, I, I'm not sure if this resurrection that we're talking about is what you believe, but I I would love to talk with you after service if this is not. If you have questions regarding this, I would love to talk about this. But my hope is this morning that you will hear this. Because of sin, 
We all have something to hide. And because of the Savior, you and I can stand unhidden, confessing, unashamed, where we see that sin and shame go deep, but God, who is powerful through Christ, his love and his forgiveness goes still deeper. Cecil Alexander pens a, 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 a hymn that goes like this, reflecting on Christ. As he thinks about the resurrection, he says, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all that love me, Christ in the mouth of the friend and the stranger. Lord, as we come to him and we say, God, of all the things that I can reflect on, of all the things that could bring me joy, would it be the truth of Christ and his death and resurrection? Friends, I have good news for you this morning that according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm going to close with just a few more words from Luke 24. I want you to see the hope and the joy that they had, and then I'll pray. Luke 24, verse 50, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Would you pray with me? Father, my ask this morning is that our hearts would never grow cold to this news. May we again rejoice at the resurrection where our hope is placed and where it is found. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in Christ, in the resurrection, that Lord, that it would truly cover our shame, that we would be a people who are most confident, not in ourselves, That we are a confident, joyful people, not because of our achievements, not because we've covered it up, but because you, by your sacrifice, have covered all of our sin and shame. And for that, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.